大家晚上好，这里是正在为您。Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. When the Chinese spacecraft Chang'e 4 landed on the far side of the moon in early January, the mission made headlines around the world. China had achieved something that other space powers had never attempted before. The moon landing underlined that science and research in China have made rapid progress over the last few years. China has invested heavily in scientific research, and today has the world's second largest research and development budget in the world after the United States. But apart from the moon landing, China also makes headlines with more controversial subjects: the gene editing of human embryos, for instance, the lack of academic freedom in China, espionage by Chinese students abroad. So, what does all this tell us about China and its research landscape? And what does it mean for Europe, for collaborations, for instance, with China in higher education and research? How independent are Chinese research institutions? Who pays for joint projects? Is it okay to accept all expenses paid invitations to conferences in China, and how to deal with sensitive data in the course of a research project with China? Hello, I'm Ruth Kirchner, and in this podcast, I'm looking for answers to these questions. I'm joined by Merrick's director Frank Pike, who has co-authored a study on Europe-China collaboration in higher education and research. The study was published by the Leiden Asia Center in the Netherlands, where Frank was a director before joining Merrick's last year. Welcome, Frank, to our studio here in Berlin. Let's start with the moon landing in January—a true breakthrough for China, for sure. Does China actually need cooperation with Europe or the U.S., or can they do this all on their own? Well, that depends, of course, which field of research you're talking about. I would say that in this particular field of space exploration, it's so complex that any country, including China,、uh, benefits massively from collaboration. But other fields of research, it obviously is、uh, entirely different. So again, it depends on what you're talking about. Now, I said in my introduction that、uh, China has come a long way in research and、uh, development. Chinese researchers produce more research papers than most of their peers in other countries.、Uh, what does it tell us about how advanced they are, and maybe about、uh, about the quality of that research? The most important thing that it tells us is that they take research and publications and patents and intellectual property right extremely seriously. That is an important thing to realize. Also, against the background of the discussion about often mentioned infringements, for instance, of Chinese of intellectual property rights and the like, that I think is something that is no longer that important in China, and rather China is a very important producer of patents and other types of intellectual property rights,、uh, and it's also a great stakeholder that with that, with the maintenance of an international system to guarantee such property rights. But as As always, in a country that is、uh, controlled by a communist party, there is a bit of a fetish for numbers. So the number and the amount of publications and patents and so forth become an extremely important indication of China's success in what the Chinese Communist Party and its government perceive to be a competition、uh, for a very prominent place in the world. So in that sense, it has a little bit of a flavor of an Olympic、uh, Games, right? There also you want to win as many gold medals. Regardless of what in, in what fields these gold medals have been won, if you win a lot, if you have a lot of patents, then surely you must be a world leader. So we should, I don't think, not be too much obsessed with that same kind of numbers game. 
but rather look at what kind of things people actually apply for patents for and what that does to the competitiveness of their intellectual academic and also business environment. But uh, then when it comes to research and to academia, it also means that uh, Chinese researchers might be under more pressure to publish, actually, than some of their peers in other countries. Absolutely. I can only constantly say something about the situation in the social sciences and the humanities, which is my own uh, sort of broad field, as it were. And it's very apparent when you talk to colleagues in China, so professors or advanced graduate students, that there is a system now being put in place in China, and it's fully working, working and fully functional, that really force people to produce very high quality or at least very b well-cited publications, particularly in international journals. And now this is something that is uh, part and parcel of the general research environment the world over. But again, China has made it its business to be a world leader in this as well. And so they take this incredibly seriously. So young researchers or advanced professors get numbers, hard numbers, of the papers that they have to publish. And you get points for articles in particular journals depending on their ranking. So it's a highly elaborate system, but also it's a system that is very rigorously and seriously applied. But it also carries the risk that uh, you have to publish no matter what and how. That's the publisher perish kind of thing. Uh, that is a, a disease that has spread across academia the world over. But again, China has taken up this system and has taken up this message with a particular relish and has become, let's say, a recent convert that becomes even more of a believer than the jaded old priest who converted him in the first place. Now, a little earlier, you mentioned the Communist Party, uh, which brings us to the question, of course, uh, how independent are research institutions in China? In the humanities and social sciences, the party influence is bound to be felt. Uh, but what about other areas, such as technology or medical research? In the social sciences and the humanities, there is a clear indication that uh, you have to be uh, a bit careful about what you write, uh, and particularly what topics you write about. Now, we shouldn't exaggerate that. It's not as bad as people think, but there is definitely pressure there. Uh, and you don't have absolute academic freedom anymore. Although I also have to say, if you stay within the limits of pure academic research and publication, there's still an, a very considerable freedom to do what you want. In the natural sciences and other exact sciences, the influence has less to do with the content, because that's not politically sensitive in its own right, but it has to do about which topics and which fields are strategic. And these funds then get the attention, get the funding needed for their rapid development. Let's say like uh, research into robotics or um, new energy vehicles is probably getting more funding than research in more arcane fields, right? Yes, these are good examples. There are many examples, there are whole lists uh, in China of fields and topics that uh, have been earmarked for special funding and special attention. And that is part of the famous China 2025 strategy. How does it work then in a research in institution? Um, your, your study also mentions um, party secretaries in these institutions. Uh, how are then funds for research? How are they allocated? And, and who has the ultimate say over which project gets funding and which might not get any money? First, the question about funding and the allocation of funding, that is a real mix because it's a very uh, sophisticated system. It's a, it's a mix of funding that runs 
for specific earmarked projects or specific earmarked topics through either ministries or through the National Research Council in China. Uh, it can be either be by direct allocation or it can be through competitive grants, and the latter is more important than people often think. But of course also, particularly local governments, that allocate funds to specific institutions that are sort of their, their favorites uh, or topics that they have earmarked as especially important. And these funds are much more at the political discretion of a local power holder, a, a decision maker. So it's a real mixed system where on the one hand you have to cover your political back, as it were, and ensure that the funds keep on coming in through the political front door, not the back door, but the front door. On the other hand, you also have to be good at currying favor with national ministries and national funders. And of course, you have to also be very, very good at writing grant, good grant applications for national and also local uh, research uh, grant funding. So that's question number one. Question number two is about the power of party secretaries. The Chinese government has said, or actually the Chinese Communist Party has said, that party secretaries and party committees should play a more prominent role in all kinds of organizations. They should become more active and more visible. This you can read in many different ways. You can say, look at this as a complete change of policy. Or you could say, well, this is basically emphasizing what was already there and activating it more or emphasizing it more, but it's not a fundamental change in, in direction. I think the latter. Um, I think in many organizations, many universities or many research institutes, party secretaries and party committees have always been there. In fact, they had to be there. That's a matter of regulation. That's a, that's a requirement. You, you can't get around that. But what is happening now is that these party secretaries and committees are put sort of more... Uh, in the spotlight, or they, they, they gain more prominence. But, but have they also gained more influence? That is possible. We just don't know yet, actually. It's too early for that to say. You would think they do. And that influence would then either be more political monitoring, perhaps, but it could also be monitoring that these institutions do the kind of research that conforms to the priorities set by the party and by the government. That's a completely different type of monitoring. But when you look, for instance, at party secretaries in universities, when I was a student uh, in the 80s, and also when I was a researcher in China in the 1990s and 2000s, they all had party secretaries, and all organizations had party secretaries, and all had party committees, and the party secretary was always the number one. That is a normal part of Chinese society and the Chinese political system. This is Merrick's Experts. My guest today is Frank Pieke, director of Merrick's. We discuss Chinese research and science and Europe-China collaboration. Now, Frank, under these conditions and with that heavy influence of um, the Communist Party in all matters concerning academia, collaborating with China in research, is that then... A good idea or a bad idea? Well, that, of course, is exactly the question that this study that we did in Leiden, but also here in Berlin, because I continued to work on it while I was in Berlin, so it is much, just as much a Merck study in that sense as it is a Leiden Asia Center study. And the picture that comes out of that is remarkably consistent, I think. Most people say that uh, research collaboration is, by and large, to the advantage of European and Chinese researchers and research teams, but there always is also a very common thing that everybody seems to emphasize, and that is that Europeans, 
have been excessively naive about these collaborations. They either think in terms of, and that sounds almost amazingly old-fashioned, in terms of helping China to become uh, better developed, right? So it's the the grey-haired Western professor who goes to China and lectures to an audience of eager Chinese and all the extension of this particular model, which applied, of course, to the 1980s and the 1990s, but no longer really applies in the real world. Um, but what still happens, and that is more important, I think, is that Europeans tend to think, in that sense they're very similar to uh, Americans as well, for instance, uh, that you do research in order to gain knowledge. You want to solve puzzles. You want to better understand something. It's curiosity that drives it. And in that curiosity, you're very happy to work together with other people who may, may have tools or may have knowledge or may have data or experience that will help you and that supplement the ones that you yourself have. Now, that model of collaboration at the level of individual research or individual research teams leaves the door wide open to abuse of a party that doesn't want to play the normal game, but rather looks at this much more strategically. And we've got many examples of research projects that were completely bona fide and where uh, the European and the Chinese were happily working together to develop whatever it was, a new battery or a new car or a new spacecraft or whatever it may be, without the Europeans really giving much thought about how this could be commercialized or how this could be used perhaps militarily or in other ways in China that would be to the advantage of China as a country, China as a government, and China as a communist party. That's something that simply doesn't enter into the, in the equation of many researchers, research teams, and universities. So that awareness, I think, is something that needs to be beefed up. We have to, when we do research with Chinese collaborators, individuals, teams, universities, always ask ourselves a set of questions about why they do this, what's in it for them, how can we share uh, the benefits? How we do we ensure that they don't get things we don't want to give them? And the other way around, of course, they should also ask themselves these questions. Um, and then, after you've asked these questions, then enter into clear negotiations about how this collaboration can happen. Uh, and if you have to conclude that uh, against that benchmark of things that you want to ensure, the collaboration can't happen, then you should do, shouldn't do it. But you should never, of course, say we, we block collaboration, but rather awareness of the strategic nature of research is really important because in China, academic research and other types of research are very much part of the plan. But if uh, Europe did, or if European research institutions did all of what you just uh, pointed out, then how could they benefit from China in collaborating more closely with Chinese research institutions? The usual things, namely that China has uh, a lot of resources, so it has a lot of financial resources, it has quite often, particularly in the natural sciences, has very advanced tools, so equipment that we don't have or only have much fewer of in Europe because they're very expensive. China has also a lot of talented people, so it's a vast talent pool in terms of researchers. And also, which is something that is quite often forgotten, China, because it's a unified country, and to a large extent a not a homogenous population, but a population that is much more homogenous than in Europe, you have a much greater, literally, a database. 
So it's much easier to roll out research over a massive population than it is in Western European contexts. Uh, and all these advantages added up together make China a very attractive partner from which we can benefit a lot. Okay, so there are a lot of benefits. Um, you pointed out broader lines of where maybe Europeans have to be a bit more careful and where they have been uh, maybe naive in the past. Now then let's uh, discuss some concrete areas where there are risks or maybe pitfalls for European academics and researchers. Let's start with financing. Is there awareness of uh, the pitfalls when it comes to, to financing joint projects and uh, what, uh, the de what, what kind of demands um, Chinese research institutions might have uh, in these collaborations? Well, uh, the, cl the clear things like, you know, who gets um, the intellectual property rights or something, uh, but also much more basic, who gets to publish a thing as the first author. Uh, these are very basic things, but people quite often don't think about it before they start the project. They only discover them afterwards. But of course, just as importantly, research in key strategic fields. You mentioned two German preoccupations, batteries, uh, cars uh, and robotics, there are many more. And you have to ask yourself to what extent will the findings of the research or the IP produced by the research benefit only China's build-up of capacity in this field? Or does it benefit the build-up of the capacity in both areas, in Europe and in China. I'm not saying that we shouldn't, through research collaboration, as it were, produce things for China, but we should make absolutely sure that it's not only China that benefits. Europe should benefit just as much. An area where maybe the divide is slightly larger is when it comes to ethics, right? Because there have been cases uh, mm -hmm. where Chinese researchers have blatantly breached sort of ethic codes. Um, there is a different approach to, let's say, genome edi editing. There's a different approach to animal experiments. How should uh, European researchers deal with this area? Important question, but there are, again, two sides to this coin. The first one is that, indeed, in many fields, ethical codes, ethical research codes, are laxer in China than there are in the West, but China is catching up very fast. The government is aware, but universities are aware as well, of the often very severe ethical implications of, say, animal uh, testing, or the use of human uh, subjects uh, and the like, or the use of data for that matter. Right? So they are aware of that, and you see in China just as much as in Europe and in America, the development of ethical codes, and with that also greatly the enforcement of these ethical codes. So then it's not that, it's sort of the Wild West out there, or the Wild East. The other side of this coin is much more interesting, actually, and that is that in our research we found several cases, reported cases, of European research groups doing their research in China because the ethical codes were much more lax. So they could circumvent European research ethics by doing the research in China with Chinese partners. Now that says many things. You could, for instance, read this as perhaps we are too strict in Europe, uh, perhaps we are too obsessed by ethics sometimes, that's one way of looking at it. You could also say these researchers actually blatantly ignore ethical rules that were put in place for a reason, and therefore this should not be allowed anymore. And people who use sort of this backdoor in China should in one way or the other be penalized. Which of the two decisions you make is up to you. I'm just putting them in front of you. 
One area I'm particularly interested in, that was also highlighted in your study, by the way, is self-censorship when it comes to uh, collaborating with China. Now, in your study, you conclude that self-censorship, and I quote here, that China inspires poses the most significant challenge to international academia. Now, give us examples where self-censorship in collaborating with China, where it actually can be felt. I think this is something that is found mostly in the uh, social sciences and in, in the humanities. But then, of course, it varies enormously depending on which topics you are talking about. It's also not a new issue. Anybody who does research and research collaboration in an environment where there isn't ironclad academic freedom will, in order to do that, have to be aware that there are certain things you can't say or can't do. That's just part and parcel of how China works. But what is happening currently are two things. First of all, it is very clear that in China, the scope of what is permissible is being reduced and foreign researchers feeling that as well. This does not just date from the Xi Jinping era. This is something that started already in the mid-2000s, roughly. And it became more and more difficult to do research on things that were politically a little bit sensitive and particularly do research using, for instance, surveys. So this issue is becoming becoming much more pronounced for many Western researchers. And to a certain extent, you just have to go along with it, right? If you want to understand China and you want to do that by doing research in China, then you can't avoid that. But, of course, there are bottom lines. So if they want us to represent blatant lies or want to limit our research to only those lists of topics that they deem acceptable or only want to want us to regurgitate the party line of particular topics, that is something we don't want to do. And if that happens, we should put a stop to it. But there are areas in between, and that also holds true for Merricks and the research you do here at the Institute, sort of toning down research or toning down research findings. So in, in order to secure continuous access like visas to China or not publishing stuff on certain sensitive issues, let's say Xinjiang and the human rights situation in Xinjiang. I mean, these are issues that not just universities, but also a think tank like Merix has to mm. deal with. So how do you go about that? In my entire career as a researcher on China, I've never ever limited myself in terms of the things that I say. But I've limited myself in the things that I do research on simply because it's impossible to do research on them. So if you say, I really would like to research on how the Chinese Central Committee makes its decisions, that might be a wonderful project, but it's undoable. But once I've done research on a particular topic, I've never ever censored myself. I've also, this is really important to say, I think, I've never felt the breath of the censor down my neck. So there's never been an attempt, as far as I know, but maybe I'm just so thick-skinned that I don't even notice it, an attempt to censor the things that I've written or said. I've also never felt any consequence of the things that I've written or said. And again, you say, well, things you say are so blatantly boring that it doesn't matter. So I think there is a real risk of us overestimating what the Chinese Communist Party wishes to control that foreigners say about China or that foreigners don't say about China. Nevertheless, we have to be aware of the fact that, yes, we are not dealing with a free and open society. That's just a fact of life. Here in Merricks, we have never, ever not done something 
because we thought or believed that the Chinese government would not like it. And we do in fact work on even very sensitive things like Chinese religion, like the treatment of Uyghurs in, in Xinjiang. We openly discuss these things and we will continue to do so. To uh, conclude then, um, in that whole field of uh, collaborating with China, where should Europe then draw the red lines? I think the, the red lines are first of all in the dual-use area, which is a bit of a special area, but dual-use is actually very broad because just about anything can be dual-use. That's a clear area where we should be not so much draw red lines, but be very, very clear what we want to do and don't want to do. I also think that we have to be very aware of certain types of real or potential interference in what we do. Now, there isn't a lot of evidence that this happens, but there is some of, like pot uh, of potential interference. And I can only speak out of personal uh, experience here that I know that Chinese students abroad uh, have been quizzed uh, upon return to China for a visit by the local Bureau for National Security about their research and about the research of other PhD students and about other researchers in the university abroad. Now, this has no consequences yet, but it's a clear attempt to create a database that might be put to some use. Now, these things, when we find them out, we should be very clear about that, that we will not allow this and give all the protection to the students that they need to continue to do their work here in Europe. And we should also not be afraid to address this in our negotiations at the highest level with the Chinese authorities, because this is something that directly violates the very spirit of academic collaboration and academic research. Uh, the various other areas, but um, I would not want to say we should actually have a, a kind of industrial policy or something like that, because we deem them to be so important to us that we cannot allow the Chinese to uh, steal our, our secrets or to steal our, our, our intellectual property rights. That would go, be going too far. But what we can, of course, do and must do, and I think already do, is not to allow, or if we discover it, not allow Chinese students to take free of charge research findings from Europe and take it back home without getting permission or paying for it. So if that happens again, this is a red line. We should not allow people to cross that. But then when push comes to shove, would that also mean excluding students from certain programs or from certain research projects? Yes, but I would not want to have a blanket rule against Chinese students or students from any nationality, right? This is something that people are now saying, particularly people that are more sort of, say, security conscious. They say, well, shouldn't we exclude Chinese students from particular areas of research or exclude them completely? And that's people, some people say that as well. I think that's nonsense. What we should do for those areas that are sensitive uh, in whatever way, economically, commercially, militarily, if they're sensitive, that we do a very thorough background study of these students that apply for a PhD or visitors or whatever. So these people should then be, uh, we should be very clear, what is their background, who is funding them, and what will they do uh, upon return to China. I would do this for people from any other country. So in that sense, we shouldn't have something specifically for China, but we should be a little bit more aware of the strategic implications of research and research collaboration. 
So, a lot of homework for European research institutions when it comes to collaborating with China. Frank, thanks a lot for talking to me. That was Merrick's director, Frank Pieke. We discussed the benefits and risks of working with China in research and higher education. The study Frank co-authored is called Assessing Europe-China Collaboration in Higher Education and Research. You can find a summary on our website. Thanks for listening and bye for now. You have been listening to Merrick's Experts the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merix.org.